Welcome. We are going to start with a webinar and talk about the future of multilateralism. In today's webinar, we have Simon Evanet, who is a professor of international trade and economic development at the University of St. Gallen. And Simon has written a book together with Richard Baldwin, a CPR uh, press ebook called Revitalizing Multilateralism. And it describes pragmatic ideas for the new WTO Director General. And so the book has, I mean, I think the book is fairly known um, by now. And the book discusses uh, with 21 chapters, all sorts of trade ideas and proposals from various trade aspects of how to improve and develop and revitalize multilateralism. And these, this book also gives very pragmatic ideas for the new director general. I mean, um, the book is not short of any pragmatic proposals and these are then also the issues that we are going to discuss today so Simon very welcome to this uh, webinar first I mean I would like to sort of start with the overall sort of um, notion that the book already quite in the beginning puts forward that is the notion of a crisis so because that that's something that the book does um, state from the very beginning and i mean it states that you know there is this crisis in 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 terms of trade and for the world trading system now and if you take a step back and if you think about this this notion of crisis i mean you can only conclude that we have had quite a few in recent years i mean we have you know the us retreat from multilateralism we have trump's tariff war we have the two major crises, as you also describe over the last 15 years of course the global financial crisis and now we have covid Meanwhile, I mean, we see that Doha hasn't worked. Um, there is also in the background is increased inequality that many people blame that globalization is responsible for. We also see many PTAs coming up where things are happening. So altogether, you could say, you know, there is a lot of reason for pessimism at the WTO. And yet in your book, you know, already very explicitly from the beginning, you say, no, that's not the case. Could you explain why we shouldn't be so pessimistic about it? Thank you, Eric, and th thank you for uh, inviting me to speak on this uh, webinar and to share some thoughts with colleagues. Let me put my current uh, optimism in, in context. If you go back to uh, 15 years or so to the Doha round, when everyone was saying, this is going to happen, we're going to do it, let's keep the momentum up, uh, I'm afraid I was one of the first people to turn around and say, I don't see the pieces falling into place. And so uh, back then I was concerned that actually the, you know, the consensus view or the conventional wisdom was wrong about uh, you know, being able to uh, successfully conclude that round. And now I have a similar feeling that the sort of conventional wisdom of doom and gloom is overdone as well. And I, I would highlight an, a number of points. And by the way, I don't want to deny the setbacks that we've seen here. I mean, the, the trade war was terrible. It was essentially one major power revoking MFN status on another and, quote, getting away with it as far as WTO rules were concerned. And uh, we have had the two big global economic crises that we've faced as well. Uh, so I'm not, I don't want to downplay the problems, but I think we should also um, balance that out by recognizing that uh, you know, over the last 10 years, about a third of all trade policy changes we've seen 
have been liberalizing, they've actually opened up markets. Those are the unilateral policy changes. We have had a number of regional trade agreements signed. There has been, I think, a small a loss of momentum behind them, but we still do occasionally have big agreements being signed like RCEP. We are seeing countries collaborating investment areas. And of course, we have the EU-China Accord as well. And so when I look at the world, it's true that there's a lot of downside and, and downside, of course, sells well. It, it gets good media headlines, it gets good social media headlines, but there's also quite a lot of unilateral reform going on. Countries haven't lost the knack for that. Some countries haven't lost the knack for um, collaboration in terms of you know, either sectoral initiatives or, or uh, regional initiatives and the like. And, uh, and of course, even at the WTO, once we've run into trouble um, with the multilateral approach, uh, countries have also tried to go ahead on these uh, joint statement initiatives, which of course are coalitions of the willing. So, you know, countries have been, you know, countries who want to move forward have come forward and identify areas where they want to collaborate. And of course, in the area of dispute settlement, where we have a problem too, uh, we have a group of countries which have come up with a, what they might think of as an interim measure, it may end up being more permanent, but at least, you know, they have responded. So I would urge people to see the entire canvas. You know, there are storm clouds, there is thunder and lightning. But there, there's also um, good news as well. And so I think we were, Richard and I were keen on asking, okay, if there is this good news and there, uh, there is this good news, how could we capitalize on this? Furthermore, the context of the, of the pandemic offers, in, my, in our view, an opportunity for the trading system to demonstrate uh, that it can deliver in an important non-economic area, an important social area such as you know, the delivery of PPE, the delivery of vaccines and the like. And so when you look at what's what could happen this year in 2021, this could be a year where the WTO members, if they got their act together, could take a number of steps which demonstrate to prime ministers and presidents that the WTO is a place where stuff still happens and things get done, constructive things get done. So again, to go back to how, how where I started, I. I don't typically follow the conventional wisdom on where trade policy discussions are at. And I think uh, as we went through last year, it seemed to me that was a there were opportunities available and which could, we could, um, and a few triggers of uh, potential change, such as the incoming Biden administration, as well as the, you know, a new director general coming in, which could tip the balance back towards a more positive direction and prospect for the WTO. And what Richard and I uh, wanted to do was to put together a group of experts, and you were, of course, one of them, who could help us talk through what those steps could be in the short term and the medium term to help us get there. And that was that was the spirit in which we approached this ebook. Yeah, so if I may sort of take a step sort of forward and try to be a bit more provocative here, if, if, if I may. I mean, because, I mean, so you're saying that there's still enough engine to, you know, get this forward and to revitalize multilateralism. But, I mean, if you, if you look around, I mean, you could also say, well, maybe there is not sort of so much optimism. I mean, because, you know, on top of what I already said before, I mean, there is this slowing speed of globalization, right? So there's this new 
discussion coming up, whether it's deglobalization or a slowing pace. If you look at some of the surveys, particularly here in uh, Europe, like for instance, what I also found is that the Eurobarometer, the latest one, says that 75% of the people that responded, of European people, prefer to shift to local providers instead of trade. Mm -hmm. um, as you said, the new US administration is likely, well, it hopefully will come forward and do something about you know, multilateralism and fix some of these points that it has done in the last couple of years. But, you know, it's also very likely maybe to focus on domestic policies rather than trade. So, you know, again, I would sort of try to put forward the question, why then is it worthwhile to fix the WTO right now, like in current times, and why not wait for a couple of years? And I mean, on top of that, do policymakers and G20 leaders also see that need to revitalize the WTO right now, as soon as there is a new director general coming in? So let me come at, come at this in a number of ways. I think the, the concern of waiting, so let's, let's put on the table the options, right? We could do nothing or, or wait. Doing nothing or waiting is not going to fix problems. And uh, we, are, you know, we, we will not have a predictable framework for the development of digital trade. We, it, doing nothing would also open the door to countries taking unilateral steps in the area of climate change and border tax adjustments, which could end up uh, further inflaming things. So I think not talking and not working together isn't going to help um, issues. Having said that, um, I fully understand why you know, prime ministers, presidents and their advisors could just roll their eyes when they hear, let's try and do something to fix the, the WTO. I mean, in fact, my mind goes back about five years ago when one G7 government came to me and said, you know, what new messages can we share about multilateralism? And please don't mention the Doha round. It was a there was a you know a sense that uh, the, you know, the WTO had shot its bolt on that one, and that uh, uh, this this system was not you know, as credible as it could be. Yet at the same um, you know so I understand I, I understand that the the starting point is is one of, of considerable skepticism. Yet at the same time I would see uh, potential opportunities here as as well, which is I mentioned earlier. You know we've got to rationally and try and in a least disruptive way possible, distribute a huge amount of vaccine across the world in the next year. And that's going to require quite a range of different um, trade policy related matters, which uh, could come up. Uh, I think there is a, a desire to uh, rethink where supply chains could go and where the WTO could contribute to the resilience of supply chains as well. Uh, we have to get shipping back together, uh, get back working and airlines back working as well. I mean, we have uh, you know, incredible restrictions at ports and on, on seafarers leaving ships. And so when I look at the next sort of six to 12 months there, you know, in terms of getting the world economy and the world trading system back on its feet, there is a possibility there, you know, there are, there's plenty to be done there. Mm -hmm. The question then is whether we can uh, encourage enough governments to come together with proposals that uh, to gain some momentum, and then whether that momentum shows to the prime ministers and presidents, or I'd agree, maybe we oversold the WTO. Maybe actually it is quite it is quite useful. I think instinctively, when you deal with a lot of countries, senior officials. I mean, they. I don't. I don't get the sense that there are many senior officials who want to bury the WTO. Let's. I mean, mm -hmm. there are a few people in the current White House who might want to do that. Uh, but once you get outside of there, uh, I think there are a lot of people who'd like to see this organization succeed. But, you know, they're not going to attach much time and effort to arguing for that, given the lousy track record of the last 10 years. Right? I get that. Uh, but I want what I want to suggest to you is that there's an opportunity going forward 
in terms of, of showing the WTO in a positive light. And then there are some structural uh, issues we have uh, got to help define the rules of the road for, digital trade, climate change. And then there's another really important factor we have to deal with, which is uh, that we have different types of capitalism now, some state-led, some market-led, and we need to find some way in which those, those forms of capitalism can get along with one another, or at least rub along without causing too much friction and discord. So there's a lot to be done, and we don't have to do it immediately. Uh, we don't have to, you know, it, it, this is not the time, I think, for someone to put out a massive blueprint. Instead, it's more a matter of baby steps, uh, which hopefully build confidence, and then on top of that, uh, which, are, which we can build on. Uh, so I see it in those terms, rather than, uh, you know, either complete pessimism and nihilism giving up on the WTO, or one of these sort of uh, blue sky exercises where someone comes up and wants to reach Re, uh, recreate the entire system. I see no appetite for that either. But I do see, I would argue, based on what we saw last year with a number of countries coming forward at the WTO with ideas about how to collaborate, that there is some interest in it. And it may not carry all of the WTO membership, mm-hmm. but in my view, it doesn't have to. I'll come back in a couple of minutes about, you know, the, the, the sort of issues that you brought up, like climate change, digital economy. And also because I already see that we also have one question related to this. But before I get there, I would like to sort of ask a different question because you mentioned the sort of structural element of the WTO. And that implies a little bit of a longer term sort of perspective. And regarding that, I mean, in your book, in your first chapter, you also talk about like the common purpose and the common means across WTO members. So that implies, you know, a sort of a longer term approach that is necessary uh, to find that sort of common common purpose and then the means to to realize these purposes. So again, if I play devil's advocate here, I mean, one could also argue, well, you know, these these common purposes, as you also mentioned, they differ widely across WTO members. And that could make it difficult to get back, you know, to get the WTO back on track. I mean, after the global or after the COVID-19 crisis and to, to make the WTO relevant again post post COVID. And so then my question is, I mean, could you tell us more about these shared goals across WTO members? Maybe also why they vary across WTO members. And what I'm actually even more curious about as a third sort of sub question here is what have you found then, given that these purposes vary so much, what is the largest sort of what is the purpose that finds largest common grounds across these WTO members? Okay, uh, thank you. Um, we we framed it um, slightly differently. Um, Richard and I argued in the following way, which is that once the confidence building measures that I just talked about earlier uh, were underway, we encouraged uh, we would encourage the uh, members of the WTO, in particular their senior diplomats in Geneva, to ask the question what do we want this organization to do over the next five or 10 years, say 10 years? Now that question is different from the question which they've previously been asking, right? If you look at the Riyadh initiative, which the Saudis organized in their G20 presidency, it was, you know, what values can we agree on? Which is a slightly different question because values you can always say, you can always say, I sign up to this. Asking the question, where do you want to go forces you to think about, or where do you want the WTO to go? forces you to think about which imperatives should drive this system. The next step in our argument was to say, well, look, what have we heard from diplomats talking about imperatives of the WTO? And we heard 
probably uh, six or seven, and then we would add an eighth, okay? The first imperative is yeah. the oldest one, which is uh, that uh, countries want to use, the WTO should help countries integrate international uh, into, into global markets, whether on their own or regionally or multilaterally. Right? That's a, an old imperative. Another imperative is to limit uncertainty in international trade. That's why we have bindings on tariffs and things like this. A third imperative is to encourage countries to reform their economies in a market-based way. Now, this is where, you know, this is one of the you know, flashpoints because for sure the Americans want this. Often you want to hear European officials stating this, but you don't hear the Chinese arguing for that at all, right? They, they don't see the WTO as advancing a particular economic or development model. The fourth imperative is uh, one which is used to be really important at the GATT, but uh, is now I think coming back, is how do you manage the clash between different systems or different types of capitalism? The fifth imperative is how, how should countries manage disruptions which happen inevitably when you have import surges and the like? What's the right way to manage those disruptions without um, tearing up the system? The sixth imperative is one we've accepted uh, since the Uruguay round, how do we uh, encourage compliance? And the seventh imperative is how does this organization stay relevant as the world economy changes? We've already talked about digital climate change and the like. And the eighth imperative, which Richard and I put on the table, is how can this organization better manage crises, right? given that we have many of them. Now, when you listen to different diplomats and you read um, what they have to say and also what uh, scholars have to say, analysts have to say, you see a, a lot of different emphasis on this, right? You asked me where are the areas of, of uh, commonality. There's probably um, a, an appreciation that country, you know, the disruption imperative. We need a, some way in which countries can respond to disruptions without throwing out the whole body of rules. So that's probably an area. I think if you talked about the integration imperative, that is getting countries to integrate more into global markets, countries might differ in terms of the speed, but the idea that countries, there should be a framework to guide how countries do that uh, is probably not terribly controversial. The idea of limiting uncertainty in trade through bindings alike, probably not uncontroversial uh, as well. The market reform imperative, very controversial. Systems clash used to be uh, understood as an important imperative, probably will gain, gain in importance. And you can go down the list here. And, and, and I think uh, what Richard and I were suggesting was Maybe a series of quiet conversations need to happen in Geneva to identify uh, what's the largest common denominator which ke keeps the major pow powers on board. And then maybe the WTO works in those areas over the next five or 10 years at a multi on a multilateral basis if they can. And then if countries have additional imperatives they want to follow, then maybe they have to be done on a plurilateral basis or outside of the WTO. But I think framing that discussion in terms of where do you want this organization to go in the next, or what do you want it to do in the next five or 10 years is more useful than asking, okay, what values do we share and alike? Because the emphasis should really be on getting this organization going again, uh, much in the spirit of the arguments I made earlier, so that we can, you know, we can restore the credibility of this organization. Yeah, no, and I mean, there are certain issues that, that, you know, should be done at the WTO, as you pointed out in the, in the previous question. So, you know, this pragmatic approach, I mean, seems more than very reasonable, I would say, definitely. I also would like to talk about 
um, not so much like these value, values or, or imperatives, but, you know, I mean, you also talk about, uh, you know, the underlying shifts in, in the global economy in, in your book. And I think that sort of ties in with, you know, the imperatives and, but also the sort of pragmatic ideas that you, you know, uh, where you would like the WTO to move forward in the next five to 10 years. I mean, these underlying shifts, I mean, you talk about are, of course, climate change, um, energy transitions, and um, also very notably the digital economy. Also, what you have is, you know, uh, the ramifications, the economic cost as a result of, of COVID that you have in, uh, in this crisis. Now, I mean, if you put this all together, wouldn't there be sort of also sort of a danger looming around the corner here that, I mean, although you might move forward in the next five to 10 years, um, you know, with, with, with a more sort of, you know, pragmatic approach across, across WTO members, where the WTO wants to be, but then these imperatives sort of, because of these underlying shifts, will just further drift apart? Is there a danger? Is there a risk for, for, for seeing that? And if so, what would be the solution there? Is there a sort of a, a short-term quick fix in, in, your, in your mind? Okay, so I want to start off by um, framing what you've said slightly differently. Uh, what we've tried to do in our discussion about identifying imperatives is, is trying to find reasons for countries to come together or groups of countries to come together so that they can take actions which take the organization forward. So those are your sort of, I think, few century uh, petrol forces, the ones which bring people together. There are forces which, of course, would, which could break or, or further increase the divisions between countries, right? And in each of the areas that you've described, it's quite possible to draw scenarios where uh, you know, big blocks of countries or, or countries are at odds with one another. So let's take the area you know very well, which is the digital economy. The very fact that Europe has so few leading large digital um, companies, I, th I suspect materially influences how it is addressing issues to do with regulation and taxation of big tech, right? And likewise, the United States flip it around. They have so many based there. And so you can find fault lines for sure, okay? Uh, uh, and you could find all sorts of reasons why this could go wrong. But then I think, um, you know, that's, uh, you know that, that could lead to the council of despair. And these, and I, I, I think it's, uh, you know, if you're scoping out the potential scenarios for the WTO, one has to put that, that those types of bad scenarios or unfortunate scenarios on the table. But do we have to accept that? Could we do better than that? Well, you know, in the, let's take the case of digital. Uh, digital. Uh, you know, most countries have some interest in privacy for their citizens. We increasingly see a sort of freedom of speech dimension to some of the uh, social media companies' actions. There's also a very important taxation dimension, um, and that taxation dimension will become even more important once countries realize they have to start getting their uh, public finances in order after the, after the pandemic is over. Yeah. Uh, and so there's enough sort of, there, again, those are imperatives, like how to protect the privacy of people, how to protect free speech, how to ensure that uh, you know, uh, that there are enough there's enough money flowing into treasuries to be able to keep public services going and that everyone's paying a or each sector is paying some type of a reasonable share these are these could well become commonly shared imperatives which then structure cooperation so you know, if i were sketching out the scenarios i can paint some pretty bleak pictures but in a world where creative uh, officials wanted to get together 
and uh, structure some initiatives which could take things forward, there would be conversations there where I think there'd be probably more common ground on, on some imperatives, some imperatives than people might think. Again, again, it all goes back to where I started off this conversation. The conventional wisdom at the moment is very gloomy about multilateralism in general and trade, trade multilateralism is in particular. Uh, but it doesn't, yeah, but maybe that's been overdone. And maybe you know, if we had some very constructive uh, officials working certainly on both sides of the Atlantic and ideally also uh, with officials in the large emerging markets, then maybe there are some areas where you can go forward. And I'm not saying this amounts to a massive new blueprint, but it's certainly less pessimistic than the doom and gloom we've come to. So building um, or yeah, building upon uh, on this 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 answer and this question because um, as you said, like with these underlying shifts or the, the structural changes in the economy that we see, new issues will come up. So you mentioned the digital economy. You mentioned like digital tax. Uh, you also mentioned in the book the border tax adjustment. So these are new sort of policy issues that will come along with the changing global economy as a result of these underlying shifts and that will probably have to be discussed at the WTO. At the same time, you also talk about these benefits and I think it's it's very nicely put in the book that you talk about these three benefits, you know, the absolute benefit of you know, just trade liberalization, you know, trade gives you a benefit, stop. There is also, as a second type of benefit, this relative benefit. So I gain, but my trading partner also gains. So what is what is the relative implication there? What is my motivation there to, to get myself sitting around the negotiation table? And then the third benefit is that you also talk about tempering sort of commitments uh, for trade liberalization for unforeseen events. I mean, that, that I think is also very well known. So you suspend commitment temporarily in order, you know, to come back later on at the WTO um, and to realize that that's also in itself like a benefit. Now, um, if you put these benefits next to each other, I mean, they, they work sort of together. How with these new policy issue areas that will come up, how can we sort of make sure that, you know, these benefits are realized for WTO members in the future with these new policy issue coming up? And how can we make sure that, you know, these benefits remain a benefit for, for, for WTO members, given that they sort of are dependent on each other? I mean, I'd, I'd like to amplify the ideas there. And and let me let me start by saying here Richard and I found the, um, Alan Wolf, who is the number two at the WTO, his uh, way of looking at this problem, I think, very useful. So Alan argued that a WTO member looks at the benefits of its membership along the three dimensions you talked about. Are, is my country or economy gaining um, from membership? Is it gaining enough relative to how much everyone else is gaining? And uh, can uh, do I have the flexibility to be able to respond to shocks when they happen? Uh, and I'm not too constrained in how I do that, given that there are political imperatives at home. And so Alan's three-part breakdown, I think, is really helpful, especially when you look forward into the uh, and are these trends that you've identified. Let's take uh, the the case of uh, uh, climate change. Right? Imagine we have a country or a group of countries like the EU, which decide to unilaterally put in place a series of border measures which seek uh, to appropriately tax carbon use. And, uh, and whether it does so equally uh, to domestic versus foreign, 
foreign uh, producers, of course, will be the uh, key trade problem. Uh, but you can imagine a, a jurisdiction which is serious about climate change saying that we need to take this action. And of course, to the extent that those border measures then alter access to the markets of the countries which are, uh, or the or jurisdiction which has put those measures in place, then other countries may turn around and say, well, actually our overall benefit from being in the system has been affected here, okay? And you can imagine exporters from, of goods which use huge amounts of energy being particularly concerned about border tax adjustments, for example, and the like. And so that's a, a good example of how uh, something, uh, a, you know, a first order social challenge leads to a policy intervention, which on the face of it sounds like a good thing to do, but which has big implications for how a country looks at its WTO membership. A second you know, sort of trend, a second trend, which is worth thinking about here, and this has to do with the relative benefits of WTO membership. Let's take the rise of China, or, and also if you want to, even the rise of India is in, in the world economy. Uh, these economies are now, both India and China are selling more and more abroad. Uh, China, of course, has done extraordinarily well in this respect. And so it's not unreasonable, I think, for other countries to turn around and say, well, look, my country's gains from this system are now relatively smaller compared to what China's were. And the, the Chinese um, economy and the Chinese government and people are benefiting much more from this system uh, than in the past, and that the system then has become imbalanced. Now, what you do and how you negotiate your way out of that and where you go next, I think is a separate question. But the notion that the rule book, which was put in place 27 years ago, agreed 27 years ago, I mean, that generated at the time a series of benefits, which presumably governments were happy with, otherwise they wouldn't have signed, they wouldn't have agreed to create the WTO. But, um, uh, you know, that... Uh, balance of benefits, I think, has shifted quite markedly with the rise of the emerging markets. It's shifting markedly with the spread of digital technologies in some economies more than others. And it will also change with, uh, as countries react to climate change as well. And so I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, as we go forward in the next five or 10 years, more and more countries do come back and ask themselves, well, what's the relative benefits and costs of being in this organization? Not because they want to leave the organization, but because things have changed. Then, then, now, then I think we get to the interesting point, which is, that are we all going to sit on our hands and turn around and say, well, look, we agreed these rules in 1993. And for the last 25 years, uh, those are the rules of the game, and we're not prepared to change them. Or do we turn around and start saying, look, uh, the balance has changed. We need to keep as many countries on board and in the system as we can engage not to unhappy not sour members active positive members in which case we need to have a discussion about how to rebalance the benefits of membership across countries and that's a discussion um, which i think is almost i mean if let's just put it this way if it doesn't happen then we will end up with more of these sour and disengaged wto members and and that's that's the downside risk so i think anyone who wants to chart an alternative more positive course has to uh, wake up to the fact that the relative benefits of and the absolute benefits and the perception of those benefits is shifting and has shifted markedly. Yeah, but I do want to have that discussion here already. I mean, in terms of, you know, these changes are there. Um, so there has been this change. Um, should then, in order to harness these benefits or realize these benefits, 
should there also be change then in the organization of the WTO, right? So is there um, a case to get rid of some of these constraints then of the WTO precisely to accommodate these changes that you're describing? I mean, the, the constraints that may be formal constraints or legal constraints, but I also, I think perhaps the more important constraint is how we think about these problems, right? And I, and I think our mode of thinking needs to change, right? So the, the classic sort of Uruguay round way of thinking about every problem was a problem is only solved if it's codified in a trade agreement, a multilateral accord, which includes everyone all signing up to the same levels of obligations and that those obligations are enforceable with a credible system of, of dispute settlement, right? And that's the mindset which I think has pervaded much of the last 25 years. I think the Doha round negotiations showed that there's that quite frankly, there are not enough governments in the world who are willing to sign up to that model anymore, right? And so what then we are left with essentially approaches which do not involve single undertakings. Uh, we are left then with coalitions of the willing moving to hit, moving ahead in multilateral, sorry, plurilaterals. And we need to figure out how, uh, what are the rules for how countries can move ahead in plurilaterals without you know, necessarily harming other uh, countries that don't want to do so. So that's one area where I think we really, uh, you know, th that's one thing which which will have to change. We will also, um, I think, have to figure out whether or not the current system of managing disruptions, which are, you know, if you think of import surges or dumped subsidized imports, things like this, the whole trade defense architecture, which is in the WTO, um, clearly uh, that's not enough to allay American and other countries worries about Chinese subsidization. So what mechanism do we need there to enable Chinese capitalism to continue in the way it is and minimize or reduce the number of uh, conflicts with other countries? So we're going to have to think about those mechanisms for managing disruption. Uh, that's a, uh, another area which is clearly going to require a lot of work. And since we are moving into, you know, and, and the world has gone so far beyond trading goods, we have not just trade and services, we also have digital trade, FDI and the like, then a whole series of um, similar mechanisms are being developed in those areas too. So you know, in the area of uh, FDI, we've seen in the last two years, a huge spread in the number of investment screening mechanisms, which is just another way of managing the clashes between different types of capitalism, uh, often wrapped up in national security grounds, but let's not be, uh, you know, no one's fooled by that. You know, and then in the area of digital trade, we have rather than countries trying to find ways to manage um, sort of differences, countries working at different speeds in this area, we've had a lot of countries trying to shut down cross-border you know, transmission of data or limit or, or condition it. And again, is this the smartest way to handle, uh, handle these particular problems? Um, so again, I think that there's a, a lot of work to be done, but I think, to be honest, I think the one thing we've really got to jettison is a lot of the Uruguay round thinking, single undertaking, everything has to be hard law enforceable by dispute settlement. The system was never really that um, tight in the first place, but that way of thinking about um, things is, is not very helpful. Yeah, yeah, you, you, I mean, you and Richard talk about like the shackles um, in, I mean, I put them, I, I sort of use the word constraint, but I, mean, I guess a better word there is than to, Shackles is more provocative, and it, yeah. and, it, and, it, and, it, and and the word was deliberately chosen to try and get colleagues whose default position is to think about the Uruguay round solutions to problems to think again. 
and yeah. and I think these you know th those people are sufficiently creative uh, that they'll they'll find alternative ways forward. So I mean, just to follow up on this, and then I think I'm gonna sort of uh, include some of the questions that are coming in, which I think is uh, very good. And please do, all listeners, come in. Um, I'll, I'll get back to you in a minute. So about these constrained shackles that you you talk about, and you mentioned this this one word like the appellate body. I mean, could you elaborate on that? How do you see that as a shackle? How what are what are the implications then if you know want to sort of alleviate that constraint? Right, I think that's so. This is a great question, and I need to start off with a sort of professional disclaimer, which is that I'm uh, an economist, not a lawyer, but I have watched what's gone on for the last few years, last you know, 20 years, with incredible interest. And uh, I think the view amongst more and more of us is that the way in which the rules-based system was implemented, especially the DSU part of it, um, was suboptimal. I mean, basically, there are many of us who think that the appellate body, in many respects, has blown it. Okay, And I think people, you can have, you can take the position that a number of the, uh, you know, the, the appellate body drew the, you know, the wrong lines on a number of cases without being against a rules-based system, right? And here, uh, and I, when I, we were preparing the ebook, um, I was trying to think about what's a right way of thinking about this, and I went back to the writings of John Jackson, who was, of course, one of the fathers of the WTO, and also, by the way, a former colleague of mine at the University of Michigan. And uh, Jackson was very careful to say when the WTO was created that we need a system that is rule oriented, but not rule based. And he also highlighted that often rule orientation and a rule based system will look very similar. But he was under no illusion that a rules based system would at some point run into opposition from democratically elected politicians who would turn around and say, I mean, John wouldn't put the point this way, I will. Politicians would say, "Well, who the hell are these judges in Geneva?" And uh, and so Jackson he understood that it was a, a difficult balancing act. We want a system where rules are, are ideally respected, where the the value of them, intrinsic value of them, is understood. Uh, we do need a system for dealing with disputes between countries, but we cannot have an overly prescriptive system. Now, as we've talked about this. Uh, you know, uh, given webinars on this ebook around the world, it's interesting listening and listening to some people I think are very genuine supporters of rule-based um, international governance, who have been prepared to con concede that one of the problems with the way that the appellate body did things is that it's now uh, forced negotiators to be very cautious about whatever they sign up at, at the WTO. So they want to know what does it mean if you put a comma here, or mm. if you don't put a comma here, if you put a semicolon here. Now, okay, negotiators are there to do, they have to do, they should be doing their drafting job properly and seriously, right? But um, I think their jobs are hard enough trying to find middle ground without having to worry about how their views, how their, or what they agree is going to be second and third guess, second guess and third guess down the road by a, a group of judges. And I think that's where, where, where we've got it, where we've got to. I think on this overall, you know, no, I don't think anyone's arguing for abandonment of rules or, or the abandonment of dispute settlement, but we need to find another formula because the current formula clearly evidently has lost um, support. And by the way, it, it's not just a matter of losing support among, uh, in the United States where it has comprehensively lost support. 
Um, there are you know, a number of other jurisdictions which have or WTO members which have articulated real concerns about the operation of this system. Uh, yeah. And something something has gone um, horribly wrong. And I think we need to have a really creative discussion. And here, I mean, the lawyers are much better placed than economists like me to try and think through what are alternatives, ways of resolving disputes which don't replicate the same mistakes, but which still generate some degree of confidence and, and security to members of the WTF. Yeah, so it's interesting because, I mean, there are a couple of questions coming in regarding this point and precisely regarding resolving this issue, as you talked about. I mean, here literally there is a, a question saying, uh, the appellate body crisis perhaps is most important issue solving the WTO and putting the organization back on track, okay? And then here it comes, moreover, wouldn't you then, Simon, agree, or what, what are your thoughts regarding this? that this will have, resolving the issue of the appellate body, a positive impact to get the US and the EU closer towards uh, having a dialogue towards addressing China's non-market behavior. What are your thoughts regarding that? I must tell you, I really dislike the way in which the questioner has framed this issue. And, and maybe we should be open about our areas of disagreement. So let me put that on the table. I don't, I mean, the statement, the appellate body crisis is perhaps the most important issues uh, facing the WTO. It's clearly a problem, but I think the, you know, the, uh, even if we fix the appellate body crisis, and if the WTO didn't do anything about on climate change or on the digital economy, I would see this organization as a depreciating asset anyway. Mm -hmm. but it's not clear to me that privileging the appellate body crisis is the right way to think about this at all. And I, the other concern I really have is that I don't think we're going to be able to fix the appellate body crisis without thinking through how certain obligations are structured at the WTO, especially those which relate to how countries deal with disruptions, in particular, trade defense safeguards and the like. So I don't think it, we can fix the appellate body without fixing those obligations either. So again, again, I, this is a, where, you know, one of these era th uh, points where I think uh, just compartmentalizing the problem as an appellate body problem is the wrong way to look at it. And I'm, I'm not suggesting that that's what the questionnaire has said, but it comes very close to this. Let's turn to the second um, point here, which is to do with you know dealing with China's non-market behavior. I mean, China clearly has a state-driven capitalist system. They're very open about it. The balance between states and markets is different from other countries, or well, at least from many uh, many uh, of the Western nations. But even in the West, we have a quite a substantial state intervention in our economies. And rather than sort of thinking about these issues in a binary way, state capitalism or not, maybe we should be thinking about economies on a, along a continuum of more or less state intervention. And maybe it would be more useful to think about which types of state intervention are ones which cause greatest concern for trading partners because they create adverse spillovers for those trading partners. So for me, orienting it around China's non-market behavior is not the right way to look at the problem. Um, I think what we should be doing is looking across different types of state intervention and asking which ones generate the largest uh, cross-border spillovers uh, here. Now, I must tell you, my thinking on this was heavily influenced by the debate a few years ago about uh, steel, uh, excess capacity in the steel sector. Now, I don't deny that there's excess capacity in the Chinese steel sector. I think the interesting question is, what's the evidence that that's had a dramatic adverse impact on the rest of the world? And what depressed me uh, was that whenever I 
laid out a potential theory of harm based on what officials had said and what the industry had said. And then when you took those uh, lines of argument and confronted them with data, there was very little empirical evidence to support the case that there is uh, that there were major adverse cross-border spillovers. And, and I think that's, uh, I think that's an important point, which is increasingly being accepted, certainly amongst economists, is, is that, you know, a country can have stupid policies. China can have as many steel plants as it likes. But it's only when those steel plants produce goods, which are then shipped abroad or depress excessively prices in the Chinese market, that we have a problem. And then we need to figure out how do we relate to that particular cross-border spillover in a way. That's the right way to think about this. We're going to need to think about these things differently because let's take a, another area, a completely different one, not steel. You've heard a lot of policymakers argue in the last 12 months that countries need to be rely more on their own firms for supplying medical goods and equipment. You've even heard some policymakers argue that firms in those sectors, medical equipments, medical goods sectors, need to maintain um, excess levels of capacity so as to be able to deal with unexpected shocks. Well, that's another excess capacity story, just like the Chinese steel excess capacity story. Okay? If we're going to come up with rules of the road, which are gonna be applied uniformly across sectors, then we need to start thinking about what's the cross-border harm done by each of these measures, not just labeling countries according to their development models. Yeah. I don't think it's a very useful way of, of looking at, the, at this particular problem. So it's really looking at the consequences, what they cause. Basically. Sure, sure. I mean, look, I mean, my view is if, if, the China, if the Chinese government wants to build a huge numbers of steel plants and the like, and if they want to distort and allocate the resources in their own country, that's unfortunate for the well-being of the Chinese people. So I would argue to officials in Beijing, maybe that's not the smartest policy for China, but it only becomes a trade problem when there's a cross-border spillover. And I'm not denying that there can be those spillovers, but I think the focus needs to be on those spillovers, not on just, just the, the very fact that excess capacity has been built in a certain place. I'll come back to this issue in a couple of minutes about you know, these two forms of, or these two systems. But meanwhile, I mean, sticking to this point of the appellate body, we also got a question coming in asking, why didn't the US just engage in finding a creative solution or a discussion rather than criticizing and rejecting? I think, again, this is a, I'm going to give you my assessment of what I thought the, the Trump administration was trying to do there. I don't think they were interested in, in finding solutions and in the WTO going forward. To be honest, I think they were quite happy with, uh, well, I, I think they would have liked a very different type of WTO. The WTO they had was not one of their liking. I don't think they saw that they, any effort and mileage in trying to persuade other countries uh, to change. And so uh, essentially they criticized and, and offered no constructive contributions. So they were certainly not part of the solution. Um, um, they did highlight some important deficiencies, I think, but um, they were certainly unconstructive in terms of uh, how to fix the WTO. And that's because I'm not sure they wanted to fix it. You think, I mean, as an add-on question, this is likely to change with the new administration? Okay, so the signals we received here are quite qualified and we have to be very careful here. And you know, a number of colleagues have rightly made the argument that we shouldn't expect too much from the Biden administration. In my way of thinking about this is, I don't think the Biden administration will go out of its way 
to do the type of harm that the Trump administration has. In terms of in, on the downside risks are, you know, the, the potential of harming the system is much lower. But in terms of taking the system forward, I think we should be very cautious about what we expect from the Biden administration. Maybe they will, ex, you know, they'll acquiesce to the appointment of a new director general of the WTO. Maybe they'll come up, agree to some type of fix with the dispute settlement, but it won't be particularly path-breaking. But you know, we've had a very strong signal from President Biden. He's not in the market for trade liberalization. He doesn't want deals which liberalize markets. He wants to rebuild American competitiveness first. He's been very explicit about this. So I, in, in, you know, if you're looking for deals which break open markets and all the rest of it, I, that's not going to happen during the first term of a Democratic presidency. It may happen in the second term, but not in the first term. Certainly not in, on a multilateral basis. But that doesn't mean then that there aren't other forms of cooperation that are possible, especially in, in the area of medical goods. The Biden administration is very interested in climate change. So to the extent that trade policy can be seen to support the climate change goals, um, that would be valuable too. So I think there's a domain of area, there's a set of areas where dialogue could happen, but I'm not expecting anything transformative. But to be honest, as I argued earlier, you know, in order to turn the corner here, what we need actually are shorter term confidence building initiatives. We don't need a brand new blueprint for the WTO. We need to get this um, organization back on its feet and moving forward. And so smaller incremental steps in the near term, uh, which a Biden administration could go along with, would be helpful. That's very clear. Um, I also would like to come back to um, the two systems that you talk about of capitalism, because there was also one or two questions about this issue. So you do mention this in the book. I mean, there is these two systems of capitalism within, you know, the WTO. And I mean, as you also point out already, I mean, these two different um, systems are not just, you know, systems from any kind of member. No, these are from two major members that are very influential, that are massive, that each have a massive economy. And so they're very powerful. Now, still, so you argue, um, you make the point that these two capitalist approaches, I mean, there is a need for them to coexist. But given the fact that these systems are very different and coming from these two very different um, um, economies, they also have very different interests, one could argue, in the trading system. And so wouldn't that sort of, you know, hurt you know, these short-term confidence-building measures there? I mean, is there enough common ground between the two capitalist approaches in order to, to, to coexist? And what are these? So, and then that, that's one sort of one block of, of that sort of question that I would put out there. So, and if maybe for the short-term, for these confidence-building measures, I mean, there is enough sort of argument to say, well, they, they need to coexist and they are likely to be able to coexist, what about this long term? So if you go back to these imperative, for example, or the purposes, I mean, wouldn't there be sort of a threat for these two systems of, you know, again, very powerful members to, 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 to go exist? Is that possible? Let me um, answer I think there's probably more of a problem in the longer term than the shorter term is, is the one sentence answer. Let me try and explain why. We have these different systems of capitalism. And again, I, I don't like the binary distinctions. I think we should think along, along a continuum because we have a hell of a lot of subsidization which goes on in, in Western Europe and North America as well. Yeah. Uh, and I think uh, these systems, they are different, but so what? 
and the so what comes down to well you know here we have to instead of allowing our fears to get out of control we have to ask ourselves the question which practices in the different types of capitalism um create these adverse cross-border spillovers right so uh, i mentioned earlier excess capacity in in chinese manufacturing okay well uh what we need to be able to do is to for each one of these concerns identify what are the cross-border spillovers what's the harm done and how big is that harm and then what are the least disruptive ways of trying to remedy that harm right these are, that's the right way i think to approach this particular problem now then let's relate this to the cooperation short-term and long-term if you think about the short-term cooperation one area where the leading members of the WTO could get together would be to sign a memorandum of understanding on medical goods. And this has been proposed by the European Union. The United Kingdom is very much in support of it. There were earlier ideas, great ideas from New Zealand and from Singapore. These are areas where, you know, the, uh, the, this is an area where, quite frankly, um, we don't really touch on the different types of capitalism at all. Um, so that's an, a, an issue which one could take forward without there being um, too much of a uh, too much of a, a problem. So then, you know, another area where the WTO members might want to think about is, well, to what extent can the WTO ramp up its own organizational response to crises in terms of the information it gathers, how it organizes meetings, how it, how it gets people together, how it liaises with other organizations. I mean, again, this is somewhat independent of the questions of different types of capitalism. So there's a class, in short, there's a class of short-term confidence building measures, which I think can be taken, which don't fall foul of this clash of systems. Now, let's think even a little bit more ambitiously, which is that, you know, after this crisis, as I, uh, after the corona uh, pandemic is over, or as we go through it, uh, we are going to run into public finance problems. So countries, are going to need to be able to cut back on subsidies and spending and and, or, and alike. And in the past, when we've had instances like this, um, these have been quite good opportunities to rein in state support for companies. Right? Now, if you work on the assumption that no one in Beijing likes wasting money on, on, on inefficient companies, and no one in Washington does either, and no, no one in Brussels does either, if that's a starting point here, then we might begin to think, right, okay, what type of initiative could we take to begin to unwind and scale back those um, subsidies? And again, one can think very formally about this in terms of a binding accord, or maybe actually what we just need is uh, sustained progress in this area uh, mm -hmm. in, in a much more looser arrangement. So again, I think that's an area where potentially if countries frame the issue in terms of how do we make trade policy support an important imperative of sound public finances, we might be able to make progress. Where it will be harder, and this is where I'll come to the long-term imperatives, let's take the imperative that the WTO exists to encourage its members to adopt more and more market-based economic governance. It's quite clear China has absolutely no interest in that. I mean, that's, that viewpoint, I think, would, would find no favor in Beijing, okay? If you push that viewpoint in Brussels very hard, you might find much more opposition than you realize. That goes back to the sort of shifting public opinion and NGO pressure, which you, you hinted at earlier. Okay, mm -hmm. So there are some imperatives um, and some organizing logics for the WTO over the longer term, which are probably going to have to fall by the wayside. It, once you realize that China is not going away and it's probably not going to adopt a market-based system very quickly. 
Other longer term imperatives like having a system which limits uncertainty in trade policy and supports trade flows. I mean, I, I can't understand why the big players couldn't agree with that. Having a system which lets countries that do want to integrate further into world markets to go ahead and do so on their own speed, as long as they respect certain rules, who could be against that? Right? After all, China and the US do liberalize their policies as well, trade policies as well. So when you look down the list of eight imperatives that we talked about, some of them would survive um, a system where you, a, a situation where there's a lot of systems clash between different types of capitalism and some would not. Um, but I don't think it destroys all of them at all. And, and the likelihood, for example, you know, in a sort of more applicable terms of these new issue areas that come up, like if you think about, you know, border tax adjustments and digital services tax or data localization or data related, you know, restrictions, are these two systems not too far apart or is there enough sort of common ground to solve these issues for members? On digital, there's a lot of, I mean, and you know this area better than me. Uh, so uh, there, it does seem to me to be a lot of distance between countries and growing distance as well. So this might be an area where at first there is, um, you know, it, it doesn't look very promising. But again, I think the right lens is what we need in the sort of digital trade space is a much better understanding of exactly what countries are doing, the costs of what they're doing, the, both domestically and internationally, and what opportunities are being lost, right? There's a huge amount in terms of factual evidence collection, which is needed there. Now, of course, eSight did great work with the digital trade estimates, and we need much more of that type of work uh, as we go forward. And then we can start talking about, okay, which of the parts of digital regulation are the ones that are the biggest problem from, uh, from, from a sort of cross-border commerce point of view. Um, and then we can see, you know, there. So again, please don't, uh, what I would suggest to you and to colleagues is just because you see policy diverging doesn't necessarily mean that there's a big trade problem or, um, you know, we should focus on where there are big trade policy problems caused by policy divergence. But the existence of divergence itself is an important fact, but figuring out where that divergence creates harm to other countries' trading interests is that that's the, where the real hard work has to be done. Yeah, we can't short circuit this process. I agree. And I mean, yeah, so that's also, I mean, if I may, like one of my pieces that a lot more research, empirical research needs to be done. All to say is, I mean, yeah, these issues, I mean, despite being wide apart, could be, could be, could be resolved potentially. Yeah. Um, okay, so I also have a question coming in that I also wanted to ask in more or less the same terms, but I give priority to this question. The title of the book includes reference to the new WTO Director General, but the role of the DG itself hasn't been touched upon in the discussion. Not yet. I was about to come to that. <laughs> Could you speak a little bit to that and the new implications of this role in current environment? And also, when can we expect to see the selection process talks restarting again following the Biden inauguration? How high are, will that be on the agenda? And do you expect, as a third follow-up question, the new administration, the Biden administration, to endorse the new appointed or supposedly appointed DG? All right, so let's deal with those questions in reverse order because the questions got easier as, <laughs> as you went down the list. I think it's an easy short-term win for the Biden administration to accept uh, Dr. Ngozi as, a, as the next DGG. And... I'm not sure that they need to think too hard about this or to ruminate too carefully about this. 
in order to get come to that decision. So here, if we if we heard in the next six weeks that the U.S. was happy uh, with uh, going ahead with Dr. Ngozi, I would not be at all surprised, and largely because it's a decision which doesn't really, I, I think, adversely harm U.S. interests. And Dr. Ngozi is a very known commodity in the U.S. She holds a U.S. passport after all. So I think this this is a this is low hanging fruit and and a very easy way in which the Biden administration could signal that they are interested in seeing the WTO getting back on its feet. So I think that deals with the last two um, questions that you ask. The really tough question, well, it's not even tough, the, the interesting question, the super interesting question is the first question, um, the role of the DG. Because here uh, uh, we did have quite a lot to say about this in the book. The first um, third of the book, which is on uh, the first section of the book, which has chapters on how the WTO could better react to the crisis. It's interesting rereading those chapters, how the role of the DG, Director General, um, is one which people think could be a lot more active than was the case in the past 12 months. And uh, there's a, a strong sense that the processes of, you know, of supporting monitoring and deliberation by WTO members could have been, could be strengthened, and that, uh, that uh, resources should be reallocated within the secretariat to doing that, that the WTO Director General should be much more uh, uh, in touch with other international organizations whose decisions and members influence enormously trade flows. So for example, let's take the COVID crisis. Um, clearly international trade was um, ser seriously curtailed by public health response measures, transportation related measures, port restrictions, airport restrictions, restrictions on crews and all the rest of it. So what we learned there is that there's a lot of supporting decisions which are needed in order for world trade to flow in all of its different forms. And the WTO does not control all of them. So the WTO Director General really needs to be at the forefront in bringing together the different organizations there and in encouraging governments to take the least restrictive measures. So that's a much more active and open role. One of our chapter authors also argued uh, that uh, the WTO Director General should be uh, there to convene trade ministers to, on a more frequent basis during crises to be able to share uh, ideas on how they're responding to try and um, sort of unwind unfortunate uh, trade restrictions like the export curbs on, on the medical equipment that we saw last year. And so I think there is a sense that under the previous Director General of the WTO, the pendulum swung far too much towards passivity. And of course, in some sense, we shouldn't be surprised uh, because the previous Director General was a WTO, an ambassador to the WTO and the WTO ambassadors chose one of their own. And if you want to be tough about this, you would say those ambassadors chose someone who was liked, smart, able, but was not going to rock the boat, okay? And so that's why when uh, Mr. Azevedo stepped down, a number of us argued that we needed uh, a heavy hitter, someone who is willing to, uh, to bash heads together and also to be persuasive. Um, there's only so far a DG can go in this. I don't think they're necessarily transformative, but uh, you know, someone like Dr. Nongozi has a reputation for being someone who can get people to work together. And uh, she, the very fact that she has not been marinating in Geneva for years is for me actually an advantage, uh, uh, an advantage of her over others. 
Very good. Um, I have a last question. As we are sort of approaching um, the end of, of this discussion, and again, if other people want to come in um, with, with questions that are related to any of the questions, but also the following question that I asked, please do come in. I mean, we, we had some questions that could not yet be answered, but I think most of them uh, have, have touched upon the same topics that I've discussed so far. As I said in the introduction, I mean, there are 21 chapters. Each chapter has very relevant proposals. And there are many proposals. Uh, I think, I mean, if you count, I, I think there were sort of more than 80, 80, 80 proposals. Surely, I mean, we cannot implement them all. I mean, the new director general cannot sort of, you know, go ahead with all of them at the same time. I mean, there will be a lot. Put them differently, I mean, um, or ask the question differently. What then, I mean, are the sort of, let's say, three, four, proposals that needs most sort of highest priority? What is the most urgent proposal that you have come across in the book that needs to be executed, done? Okay, I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to answer it in a certain way. I think we need a proposal in each of the following three areas. Right? One is a proposal which, or initiative which helps demonstrate that WTO members and governments in the, an organization can take trade policy actions which will support the recovery from the pandemic. And so under that category, I would list having a memorandum of understanding on trade and medical goods. I would have very close monitoring of vaccine nationalism in all of its different forms, and also deliberations amongst WTO members about how to faster distribute vaccines and scale up the production of them. And so these were so that's package one. Package two, this organization, the WTO, has got to get has got to start working together again. I mean, the amount of work which has taken place at the WTO was severely cut by the lack uh, by the lack of face-to-face -face meetings. It's true, some meetings have gone on digital and in that format, but there's a lot more um, that has was identified in the ebook where the WTO could have could respond to crises. And indeed, I would argue that a new director general should be thinking about developing a crisis management protocol so that this organization gears up as fast as the WHO gears up when there's a pandemic. The WTO needs to be gearing up when there's a global economic crisis. Mm -hmm. So the second, um, yeah, there needs to be an initiative there to show that this organization, the WTO, can better adjust to crises since they seem to happen much more frequently these days. And then the third package is there has to be a down payment on the WTOs on rules uh, which are going to become more and more important as the world economy evolves. So we've talked about you know, the spread of digital trade, digitalization. We've talked about uh, climate change. In either one of these areas, and probably in digital trade because there's already an initiative there, there ought to be some type of short-term win or me, uh, which signals to prime ministers and presidents that the WTO isn't stuck in the 20th century. So I, if we had a win in each of these three areas, helping the world economy recover from COVID, building up the crisis management capabilities of the WTO, and relevance, uh, a win that showed the relevance of the WTO for the 21st century, this would be a package which, if we accomplish this in the next 12 to 18 months, we would all be talking about the WTO in a very different way. 
Okay, so I think um, we have, I think, dealt most of the sort of pressing issues. There is one last question that came in and that I think is, is, is I think, also worth discussing. In order to find this solution and to, to go ahead and, you know, to get things, uh, things work, it comes a bit back to sort of the like-mindedness or finding a common purpose or, I mean, what, what, what one, one of the um, um, uh, listeners are asking, like, some of these countries, I mean, they move ahead plurilaterally and there has been sort of, you know, at the corner of this sort of policy um, of debate about this, you know, the plurilateral. But at the same time, this listener is asking, like, wouldn't that harm others? I mean, wouldn't that sort of this double pay sort of advancement, wouldn't that sort of more divide the organization? in, in, in sort of the medium in the long term? I think the answer to that question is yes and no, and, and much depends on how the how our plurilateral is structured. I mean, clearly what we do not want is countries uh, undertaking measures which liberalize trade between a group of them and, and raise barriers against others, right? So the, there's a clear sense that you know, we don't want plurilaterals to create adverse knock-on effects for, for non-members. Yeah. So, you know, and that's why we have these discussions about, you know, critical mass measure agreements versus other types of uh, plurilaterals. I see, quite frankly, plurilaterals as being almost certainly inevitable. So uh, we need to think about how, uh, how best to structure them. Now, of course, the countries that don't want to join plurilaterals, even if they're assured that their current interests are, are not affected, may be worried that rules are being set uh, or, or templates for rules are being set, which will then be generalized. Now, there's two things to say to those countries. Well, of course, the rules can't be generalized without their consent, right? Uh, but you know, the, the other thing is that in each of the areas that we've been talking about, digital economy, climate change and the like, um, every government's going to have to take some type of stance on the policies that it wants. In which case, um, and, and since these issues are relatively nascent, then I think that's a good reason why all the big players should be in on the discussion about what those rules should be even if ultimately they don't agree to join a plurilateral, they should, um, they should be engaging in this area. It's, it's inconceivable that countries won't have policies in this area. So sort of thinking through what those policies could be and how to design them in a way which is least harmful to trading partners and yet meets the social imperative, which is uh, driving the regulation in question. I mean, this, this, this is what countries need to do. So again, I think with plurilaterals, yeah, you can paint you can paint horror stories if you want to, but on the other hand, I have enough faith in the creativity and the and, and the uh, sort of flexibility of trade negotiators to come up with variants which are less or not damaging at all to trading partners. And I think that's, uh, and, and one has to bear that in mind too. So be aware of the downside, okay, but work towards, work towards uh, plurilaterals, which are far more accommodating of, of, of non-members' interests. Okay, one final, final question for one minute, Simon, um, and then we, we wrap up um, that is coming in here. What should we then expect of the RTAs? I mean, are they supporting then this multilateralism that we are talking about? Like, are they supporting this, 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 this revitalizing um, of the WTO multilateralism or are they more forming a threat? Also, maybe in light of, you know, these bigger agreements that have been um, signed recently. I think given how low tariff barriers are in many countries now, it's harder and harder to argue that the creation of RTAs or indeed mega RTAs is going to have that much trade diversionary effect. 
to the extent that RTAs can't start covering more and more behind the order border measures than they are, uh, and to the extent that those uh, regulatory obligations are implemented on an MFN basis, even though they're part of a of RTA, then there's less to worry about there. I tend to, uh, to be to be honest with you, I, I think we as analysts have dramatically overstated the importance of RTAs, and I don't want to underplay them. And there are some RTAs and some in regional integration, like the ones we have in Europe, which have gone incredibly far. And there are one, and I would not want to put all RTAs in the same bucket, but many RTAs are fairly shallow. They're dealing with trading goods where tariffs now are already relatively low. And most of, almost all of the new issues which are coming up are going to be ones dealing with behind the border uh, policies. And there, the, you know, most countries do not want to have two types of regulatory regime. Who wants to have two regulatory regimes for their big tech firms? One with one for RTA partners and one for others? That doesn't make any sense. So there's, I think, more and more of the logic of the behind the border measures points to MFN-based implementation, whether it's in the context of an RTA or not, uh, in which case I think there's less traditional, less of a traditional fear that we would have. So again, details matter in all of these areas. I don't want to under, I don't want to uh, deny that. But when you look at the bigger picture, I'm less, I, I'm not losing that much sleep over RTAs. Okay, so we're coming on to an end. I think we have covered all of the issues. I think that are, uh, I mean, all of it is extremely important in the book, of course, and um, a fascinating read, very nice. But we have tried to cover the most important ones that you notably have pointed out in the introduction. Again, I would recommend everybody to read the book, Revitalize Multilateralism, Pragmatic Ideas for the New WTO Director General that hopefully will come in soon. Thank you very much, Simon, for discussing with us. Thank you and your colleague, Richard Botwin, for writing the book. Thank you, listeners, for being here today. And hopefully, yeah, I mean, until the next uh, webinar.